What's up, everyone? One of the goals that I had for this podcast was to provide a platform to folks who I felt were inspiring and impactful, or whose creative creations would be of interest to others. I wanted to shine light on their accomplishments and give them the recognition they deserved for their contributions to society. As I reflected more upon the types of people I wanted to give voice to, I realized how fortunate I was to be surrounded by so many successful women, particularly those in traditionally male-dominated fields. And so I decided to reach out to a few of them to see if they would be interested in coming on as guests to discuss their experiences as women in their respective professions. I wanted these fields to be ones that were important to me as well, and ones with which I've had my own degree of experience, and so I intended to explore writing, basketball, and craft beer. I was extremely grateful to receive yeses from my first two guests, but was shot down by the craft beer one for having paltry podcast statistics. It was then that I realized an unexpected but awesome coincidence, and what a wonderful opportunity this presented me in terms of that third spot. It just so happened that both of my guests were named Sarah, with an H, and so I decided to ask my daughter if she would like to be the third. She said yes, and so I'm really looking forward to speaking with her soon to complete the Sarah trifecta. It occurred to me, too, that each of the three Sarahs represents a different generation, and yet there are a lot of intangible commonalities between them, despite their various ages and professions. It also made me realize what I really wanted to get out of these first two interviews, and that was to champion these incredible women who were stalwart leaders, providing an incredible example for younger girls like my daughter. Both Sarah Key and Sarah Dessner have blazed trails for themselves in arenas that have been dominated historically by men and which still, even today, provide unnecessary hurdles to women based solely upon their gender. In this, the first of my three Sarah-centric interviews, I got to speak with a woman who inspires me more than nearly anyone else. She is a South African author who hails from an area of the world that is rich with culture and rife with strife. Her purviews and perspectives are ones that I would argue most people should aspire to attain, and she is constantly reinventing herself adding new experiences, and taking on new challenges with unrivaled fearlessness. In short, when we tell our children, and our daughters in particular, that they can be anything that they want to be in life if they just put their minds to it and work hard enough, we are really speaking about someone like Sarah Key. She was kind enough to take time out of her day to speak with me about everything from the historical and present-day struggles in both her country and her continent, to the joys of raising daughters in the modern age, and, of course, writing. I've known Sarah for half a decade at this point, and I always enjoy getting to interact with her online. But this was an absolute thrill and a genuine pleasure to be able to speak with her over the phone for the first time. She is elegant and eloquent, sharp-witted and keenly perspicacious, and I hope that you enjoy listening to our conversation as much as I enjoyed participating in it. My guest today is a South African writer, artist, activist, mother, wife, and general inspiration. Miss Sarah Key, thank you so much for joining me today on the Mishmash podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me and for that uh, rather great intro. <laughs> I know you first as a writer, but I've seen from your pictures on Facebook and your posts, you've you've done quite a, a number of different things in, in the arts. Is that correct? I have. Um, you know, I think at the beginning of my career, I always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, so I did that first. I pursued English teaching um, and then living in South Africa, you know, being a young person in the mid 90s, it was an extremely exciting time. 
um, and I got into facilitating sort of life skills and um, doing a whole lot of work around HIV and AIDS um, and creating roadshows and, you know, working in the facilitation stakes, um, which was hugely exciting. Um, I also was a lecturer in, um, at a polytechnic uh, in life skills and communication skills. And then I went on to sort of delve into adult education on a greater level um, and got a master's degree in that and taught at our big university here, the University of the Witwatersrand. So um, that kept me busy. Um, uh, I suppose writing came out of about 15 years of other jobs um, and just trying to uh, create the academic rigor uh, and learn to use the English language. And so I suppose it, it all evolved from the other skill sets that I worked on throughout my adult life. And I feel like the best writing comes from experience. And it sounds like you have a wealth that you have been able to draw off of. And you had just mentioned earlier that you've branched off into a new direction, right, in terms of your how you're spending your time these days. I, I have, uh, you know, COVID was a, was a very strange time for all of us, um, and I just sort of had a had time to pause. And our children are seventeen and nineteen now. Um, I'm soon to be fifty three, and I seem to have had you know a seven or eight year itch in my in my um, career cycle. Um, so I wrote. The last thing I did was write for a good chunk of time for about eight years. I wrote. But um, I, it's an incredibly, you know, as we say as writers, don't give up your day job. So having explored various other things in COVID, like writing curricula for homeschooling, which also became a, a kind of a niche market here in that time, um, I looked at where I want to go and I'm just sort of reassessing it. So strangely enough, at the moment, I run a ladies' fitness uh, outdoor boot camp which I've been part of for about eight or nine years. And our trainer has just immigrated. Um, so I've taken that over. And then I have an 85-year-old mother um, who is generally very hale and hearty, but broke her hip in, in April. So I kind of feel oh, no. she's up and about, though, threw away the Zimmer frame and is on her way. But I've always had an affinity for older folk. So at the moment, I'm just doing some part-time work, helping take uh, you know, old people out shopping, collecting them from hospitals if they need it, taking them to doctor's appointments. So that's actually also quite quite a, a strange turn of events before I kind of look at the direction I would like to pursue next. And that's one of the things uh, that I've found inspiring in our communications is your ability to adapt and just sort of go with the flow. I know the last few years in particular have been very difficult across the world. And you have handled that with Aplum. But I also know that you're someone who seems to be able to roll with the challenges and, and maybe the dark times without letting that negatively affect the good times. Like you seem to keep an even keel throughout, you know, not getting too high or too low. Is that, is that an accurate description? Sorry, I'm having a bit of a thunderstorm. It, I think it is. You know, I, I think that I'm a natural optimist, which, which is uh, I'm a very fortunate in that I... I also had a great childhood. I had a very happy childhood. I didn't 
experience any trauma when I was young. It was, you know, I was stable. Um, I always got to do, I was privileged. I got to do what I loved. I wanted to go and study drama and English and my parents let me do that. You know, so I've always been able to to go with my strengths and with my passions and I, and as a result, be happy. You know, so I do think that one needs to share the joy. Um, obviously, you know, life is, you have their up times and down times, but, but fortunately I, I do kind of see the, the bright picture. Um, and have, I also think it's important to develop resilience. Obviously, you know, we, none of us are going to escape life without its sadness and its trauma. But, um, I think fortunately for me, I have a kind of disposition where I do, do tend to see the glass half full rather than half empty. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot to be grateful for. So I try to kind of live by that. Obviously no one's perfect, but I have my days too. But um, on the whole, yeah, uh, you know, I'm very grateful for what I have and um, I try to celebrate everything that there is to celebrate in life. From what I've seen of your daughter's work, um, is it just Annie or, bo or both of your daughter's artists and in involved in painting? No, it's just our younger one. So uh, that's actually really quite thrilling because my maternal aunt, my only you know, maternal aunt, was actually a professional artist. So she was a Zambian and she never ever left Zambia until she was an old lady and had to come to South Africa to be cared for. Um, so she actually designed the Zambian stamps and many of the, the, the uh, assisted in designing the flag. And she was a, a wildlife artist, absolutely self-taught. Um, she also worked for the Zambian government in the 60s and 70s, going around the world and setting up exhibitions uh, for tourism. And I mean, she went through Checkpoint Charlie and she went to all kinds of extraordinary places. And she used to win these sort of double gold um, medals for these awards. And she'd take everything with her and set them up. So she actually got a member of the British Empire. So, she, I mean, she was a seriously good artist. And then it just kind of skipped everyone. I mean, my mother had a flair for color and a good eye. And, um, you know, I could write, but I couldn't draw. And it's, it's a wonderful thing now that our only our youngest child has now shown this great artistic ability. So um, she's busy taking art as a practical subject at school. Uh, you know, I didn't initially think she was good enough. She wanted to do a portrait of a horse with my old mother and all her wrinkles. And I said, wow, that's a very difficult thing. I'm not sure if you'll be able to pull that off. But um, as one of our kind of women, I think she thought that was a challenge. And uh, she's showing, you know, great talent. Uh, but she's got to, she's got another year of schooling and then she's got to decide what she wants to do. Uh, she's also good on the science and math side of things. Um, and I said, well, if you look at your mother and you will know that artists are, you know, often starving people who struggle greatly. So uh, perhaps it's something just to have as a good hobby rather than a living. So I think she's already realized that, you know, it's very difficult to make it as an artist um, in the world. And particularly where we are, you know, our arts and culture minister has really let drop the ball in times of COVID. And our artists and performers and people like that have, have struggled and starved, you know, I mean, it's actually really disgraceful. 
So I think she's already aware that although she has a talent and she's she's prepared to work very hard at it, you know, there are other things in life that will perhaps bring you more stability and more constant economic return. Right. But I'm sure she knows as as well as you do that that's only a, an ancillary aspect to it, right? That it's really the, the creation itself that matters. Uh, and I think is what really drives and influences our various outlets, whether it's writing or painting. <laughs> I can't imagine a better place to be a wildlife artist. Or... Yeah, so my aunt, she painted a lot of, I'm actually sitting here and I'm looking at her art as I speak to you. So a lot of landscapes, but then also the mammals of Southern Africa, the birds, the, she would work with entomologists, she would work with uh, ectomologists. I mean, she, she really was top notch and yeah, she... But abs from absolutely no training at all, you know, and and also sort of the most down to earth, normal kind of woman. Not my children like to to tell me that I'm slightly eccentric, which I actually do not agree with to any degree. <laughs> but my maternal aunt was also the most pragmatic woman. You know, she had none of that sort of mad artist flair. She would just go into this very ordinary, rather scruffy studio that she had and paint, you know, and she also wrote five, five books, three of them that were novels. So I, it is great to see, you know, that things come through in the genes. And, you know, I think like your children's love of, of basketball and things, you know, it's, it's quite extraordinary. I think it's just imprinted in the DNA there sometimes, these kind of passions and talents. It's so funny that you say that because I never really considered it in terms of my own either strengths or passions or interests. I knew, obviously, my kids would be exposed to them, whether it was music or writing or basketball, but those were never things that I intended to force upon them. I know sometimes, you know, parents do, they, they try to, I don't know, live vicariously through their kids or make up for failed dreams or, or you know, missed opportunities. And fortunately for me, I came into parenthood pretty satisfied and, and successful in terms of, you know, the things I wanted to accomplish. And so I've never foisted any of those upon my kids. They came to basketball on their own and music. And the fact that it's something that we can share as a bonding point, I think is great. And to see them take those things that I loved as a kid and go so much further than I was able to is, is really exciting. And it's great to see with your daughter, how it's almost like a, a legacy right at this point. And I feel like there is a legacy of, of strong women in your lineage. And that's part of why I wanted to bring you on and, and have a conversation with you, because I feel like in so many arenas, whether it's sports or the arts or whatever, there are still so many challenges that women face. And so as a writer, have you had any negative experiences or extra hurdles that you had to climb over as a woman in, in the arts? I don't think so. You know, I mean, it's an interesting thing, but I, I've never, perhaps it just is because, you know, of, of that refusal to kind of not be treated equally. But I've, I've very, I don't really feel that I've suffered from, you know, behavior, inequality or sexism or chauvinism or anything like that. But having said that, I mean, we, in our society, we have an absolutely massive problem with gender-based violence. Um, so uh, Annabelle was reading her life orientation textbook last night. It said, you know, one in four men in South Africa has admitted to raping a woman. I mean, that just gives you a, a small idea of the scope of our kind of level of 
violence that we have in South Africa perpetrated mostly um, men on women. I mean, that's my, my final novel that I've written deals with that in particular. But I think that women have an extremely raw deal in, in our country. We have a shocking amount of single mothers. Um, we have a culture of fathers who take no responsibility uh, for the children that they bring into the world. Uh, we therefore have a lot of young boys growing up with no uh, male role models. And this just perpetuates this whole cycle. Um, so, yeah, we have women who work menial jobs for nothing, who support their grown-up children, grown-up sons, grown-up, you know, grandchildren as well. They, um, you know, because of the patriarchal society and some of the the customary beliefs, um, you know, it's just extremely complicated. And women, you know, African women, sure, they are they are strong women, and they bear, you know, a, a, a heartbreaking amount on the whole. Um, and we just don't seem to be able to get the spotlight on this issue and and really make any kind of inroads into changing society in any meaningful way. Right. And I think that in the United States, most people have maybe a passing, glancing knowledge of South African history, right? I think Nelson Mandela and apartheid, especially in the, the early 90s and, and late 80s, that's pretty much the extent of it. And so when folks here think of issues in South Africa, I think they think of it more along racial lines, but the gender inequity is just as prevalent, right? Absolutely. And not only that, you know, within the within the racial lines, there's a lot of tribalism. So there are a lot of different, I mean, we have 11 official uh, languages. Um, nine of those are being African languages. So we also have different ethnic groups. And during the apartheid era, uh, the part of the, um, the strategy of apartheid was also to divide black people. So, for example, two of our great ethnic groups, the Sutu and the Zulu people, were also further pulled apart through, through conscious you know, engineering of factionism and things like that. Um, so not only is society fragmented along race lines and along gender lines, but it's also fragmented along ethnic lines. So, I mean, it, it is incredibly, it's an incredibly complicated history. Um, and it was not, you know, we, we did a few things to try and, uh, rectify the situation we had a truth and reconciliation commission for example but it didn't go any it didn't go anywhere near uh, the level of conversation we needed to heal our fractured society um, and also to look at issues of patriarchy and look at at issues you know many other deeper issues that really lots of narratives were required to even bring about you know the beginnings of healing Right. And from what I've heard from other fellow writers in South Africa that I speak with, there's a lot of corruption in the government at not just the, the larger level, but even at the local level as well, which creates even more difficulties, correct? Oh, look, we're going through a, an extremely torrid time uh, as a country on the whole. I mean, our people are, the immigration is a staggering. So if you look at Johannesburg, for example, and you look at estate agents and the amount of 
um, houses that are on the market. You know, it's it's absolute. It's not hasn't been seen in this kind of amount, um, and the reasons for that are because, you know, uh, uh, as you say, from every level, from the top down, uh, we had a our previous president was. I mean, we got we got rid of him, and he was supposed he's supposed to be in jail, but he is not in jail. <laughs> but at a national and a provincial and a municipal level. We've had this corruption, I mean, just criminal corruption with no accountability. We've had, we have something called state capture. So on every level, you know, uh, corruption has sort of infiltrated to such a degree that even in COVID, you know, protective clothing um, and, uh, you know, information about companies put to give information out just defrauded us, you know, in a time of, of, of a pandemic. We also have our, our um, national electricity supplier is completely incompetent and we have endless, you know, we, we didn't fix that in the apartheid era, but we haven't fixed it hence, you know, to this day. So we have experienced um, something called load shedding, where we will not have power at scheduled times for up to six hours a day at the moment in a city like Johannesburg, which is the economic hub of Africa. So, uh, coupled with that, we have crippling crime and we have a 42% unemployment problem. So, um, you know, people here are very poor. They're very demoralized. Uh, they, you know, it's not an easy place to live. Look, I don't know where it is. But the thing about so people in South Africa is they have this resilient spirit. We have what Nelson Mandela talked about, which is Ubuntu. We have a spirit of rising up and of overcoming things um, that we've seen before and that we actually have to continue to believe in. We have to continue to do acts of human kindness. We have to reach out to people. You know, I mean, people who come here are quite blown away by the fact that everybody talks to everyone in a country like ours. You know, whether you're in the bank or you're at the supermarket or you just stopping your car at a traffic light, you know, you'll have a chat with the next person. Um, so we've got this very, very, you know, special spirit, but we have an, a, so many social ills at the moment. And we, we, are ex we have extreme poverty. We have a disparity of wealth between the rich and the poor. You know, we have, we have numerous problems and problems that, that people are just not really willing to face anymore. They'd rather just get on the plane and go and live somewhere else. So it's it's distressing and it's heartbreaking. But, you know, I'm an African. I'm going nowhere. So um, we just, you know, this is, we live not not forgetting the wonderful things that we have. You know, we have the best weather in the world where, where I live on the high felt here. We have sunny days about, you know, 300 days a year. We have beautiful rain. We have blue skies. We have a country that's extraordinary to travel in. But on the other side, you know, we have other pretty terrifying and overwhelming problems and a government that seems to have really let our people down. Well, and see, that's one of the goals that I had with this podcast was to shed light on the fact that the problems that we have here in the United States aren't unique to us. In fact, they're, they're common, all too common. But one of the things that 
struck me about um, our interactions through the Facebook group that we met in and my interactions with um, my friend Andre from Romania and, and others from elsewhere is that I feel like for the few things that separate us, the differences, whether in our day-to-day lives or culture, philosophy, whatever it happens to be, there's so much more that unites us and so much more that we have in common. And unfortunately, these are, are negative things. But I take it as a heartening stance that the problems that we have here, the things that we're suffering with, people are suffering elsewhere as well, and they're fighting in the same way that we are. And you spoke about the South African spirit. That's something that I find incredibly inspiring because of those challenges. It's not just a recent thing. It's you know decades, if not centuries of strife, and still the South African people persevere. And it's it's inspirational, especially in times like this and what we're dealing with here in the United States. How do you do you feel that the road ahead is more hopeful now looking you know, to the next few decades? Or do you kind of think it's it's just on this even plane moving forward? Um, it's difficult to say, you know, really, in terms of where we are as a country, um, it can it can leave you feeling less hopeful. But I think what we've all got to do as global citizens, exactly to pick up on what you said, is we need to develop resilience, you know, and it is one thing that we need, if there's anything we give our children, it is, it is to become resilient. But also, you know, it's activism. It's actually standing up for those people who can't talk, doing something, you know, saying social injustice is not okay. You know, this is, you know, and I think that the next, the, it, it, Already in my case, I feel, you know, having two young, young, young women in our house, you know, our, our elder daughter's beginning law now, she's in her first year of law, um, you know, and it's fascinating to just because she's been online mostly this year, um, to listen to what they're talking about. And, you know, in a country like South Africa, it's also trying to find justice within customary law you know, within a complicated set of dynamics um, with with different belief structures. And I think that's the thing, you know, it's pretty difficult to say that there's one solution for all situations. You know, I think the depth and scope, uh, obviously it's just dialogue, you know, as we know, because we're people who love to dialogue and love to listen to other people's narratives. And I think that's what we've got to do. You know, the more we share and the more we come together and the more we discuss possibilities, the more hope we have of closing these gaps and of empowering people who are, you know, don't have a voice and and allowing those kind of messages to come out. But, you know, I think it's, I think the world is, yeah, it's a, it's a tough place. And I think that because we have done so much, uh, you know, if you just look at climate, if you look at, you know, those kind of issues, and we, we just sort of, how long are we going to actually just ignore these, these problems? Uh, I think as humans, we only really start to pay attention when things are falling apart. Um, you know, we, we sit here without our lights on for six hours a day. Now, now we get to a stage where we're excited, where we actually do have electricity, you know. And when we, when we do have water, we feel grateful. But, you know, I think it's because we haven't, we have neglected to, to value our resources and each other and our collective intelligence and our indigenous knowledge. You know, and we 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 have to stand up now and 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 fundamentally change our behaviors. I agree, and I think that perspective is what's important. 
speaking just for the people here, I feel too often it's easy to lose sight of the things that we do have and focus on either the things that we don't or things that we want to be different. And having that perspective, being able to be happy within your means, being able to be satisfied with what you have and working to change the things that you don't is very different than just sitting back and complaining and, and inhabiting a, a negative mental perspective. And I've noticed with you, with your writing, you're not afraid to speak about those really difficult topics. Uh, I know you, you've mentioned um, the, the violence that was featured in your books. You've covered a lot of other topics that are difficult to discuss, and you do so not just successfully, but with this raw emotional intensity. How has your experience as an African and a South African woman in particular influenced that in, in the novels that you've released? Oh, hugely. So when I when I started writing, I was working. Um, I was doing a national rollout with UNICEF and and the and the university here, and I was traveling to all the provinces, and we were looking at how to assist child-headed households infected and affected by HIV and AIDS. So I went all over the country, and what was happening at that particular time was human trafficking. So that is how sort of my books start. They start on one particular social issue that keeps me up at night. And for the first book, it was human trafficking because I used to look at, you know, in the newspapers, I used to go to provinces and see reports of human, tra you know, women who had disappeared. So that that then became something that that consumed me, um, you know, at the same time, writing thrillers, one needs to have um, obviously page turning um, pace. And and so I, the other social issues at that time were uh, a drug addiction. I had an ex-boyfriend who became addicted to crack cocaine and I'd sort of watched his devolution. And then there was the AIDS thing. So I obviously had to, I mean, my, at one stage, my editor said, please, can you stop? Can you just stop now? Can you just save these and put them in the next book? Because there were just so many issues that came up and that just got thrown into this book. You know, it was very easy to write, but it was rather difficult to, to lose half of it and make it a tight, tight, um, you know, fast paced thriller. But um, those were the issues that always drove the books. Uh, so that that was one that, you know, it continues. I mean, human trafficking is, is rife across the world, as you well know. Uh, and I mean, that's just the most horrifying kind of situation. But South Africa, once again, you've got all the different ethnic groups. You've got this rainbow of people that you can draw from. You've got the most... You've got the perfect, you know, smorgasbord of characters that you can pull and pluck from. And um, very fortunately for me, you know, in South Africa, post-apartheid, you won't you won't get slapped with, I think, what you have to be quite careful of in, in America, if I'm correct, is cultural appropriation, which would just be horrific for me because, you know, in my last book, I had about 20 black characters and three white characters, and I'm writing as a white woman, you know. So in another country, you know, maybe in the US, you know, people would say, how dare you, you can't do that. If you're not, you may not write of these experiences. But because, you know, I've worked so hard in so many different places and I've, I've used almost ethnographic stories of people I've come across, I've always managed, I've worked extremely hard to make sure that they're authentic and that they are 
you know, I have beta readers and I'm, I'm terrified because, uh, you know, because I'm aware of this whole sensitive nature around writing people of who are different from yourself. But in South Africa, you know, as writers, we're kind of, we're allowed to do that. We don't, no, I've, you know, I've yet touched wood. I've not had a, an experience where people said, oh, you, you can't write like that. How do you know? You know, you're a, you're a white woman who lives in Santon, not a woman who lives in a shack somewhere else. But because I've, I've lived through so much in this country and I've been committed to finding out about other people's stories, you know, I've, I've had a huge amount to draw from and I've, I've been able to craft wonderful, exciting extraordinary things you know not only that from the characters but also where the novels are set so you know i can travel from zimbabwe i can go to the coast i can go to the desert i can go to cape town i can come to the big city here you know and i can use the landscape as well as the cultural diversity just to to come up with these these great stories life isn't one issue at a time right and so the fact that you are covering multiple things in a single book is really reflective of the human experience. Oh, absolutely. Just as a, a quick informational session for my listeners, we met through a Facebook group called Books and Everything. Are you still involved with that group by chance? I'm not. You know, our gallant leader um, went off, and Andrew Christie, who was is my great friend, um, you know, he then went to do training and things. And I mean, he was the amazing person that sort of, brought this whole thing to light and connected all these people. I mean, he he got hold of me one day and said, oh, yeah, you know, I've been looking, look, I've looked you up and, you you know, and I gather you're out and about, but um, you're writing these books that no one seems to read. <laughs> what are you doing about it? So I said, no, I'm, I'm not too sure. What should I be doing about it? Shouldn't my American publisher be doing something about it? He said, well, darling, if you think that, you know, you're going to get nowhere. So he put me on a, on a, like a homework schedule and hounded me and told, like, kicked me and told me this is what you have to do and this is the plan you have to come up with. And, and from there, we used to have those sessions that we all met each other on, Q&A sessions. And, you know, we met a host of amazing people. I'm still in communication with, with about 20 people from that group. So um, it was an absolutely wonderful um, group, but you know he he seemed to he's gone off and and done other things. So I'm not too active on that group at all. Although I am active on other book groups. My introduction to that group came purely by chance. I had set up a book tour in 2017, and as an independent author, the problem is I have to supply my own wares. Yes. And so I was fortunate uh. enough to have sold out of the first batch. I didn't want to order too much and have extra stock on hand. And so when I was forced to make the, the second order, I, I guess I got too much. And so I wound up with uh, an excess at the end. And I wasn't really sure what to do with it. I could have just sat on them and, you know, eventually sold them. But I, I found out about the Goodreads giveaway program. And yes, so yes, that was yeah. one of my silly dreams since I was a kid was to have my books read on on every continent. And so the Goodreads giveaway gave me the opportunity to do that. I could I could specify which locale I wanted it to go to. And so I was able to do that. And Andrew wound up being the winner from South Africa for my African giveaway. Uh. And it was really funny because I sent out the book. Everything was fine. 
And a few weeks later, I got a message from Goodreads informing me that uh, there was a complaint. I said, a complaint? Uh-oh. You know, I, I didn't know what happened. And it turns <laughs> out that Andrew said that he had never received the book. And so we weren't, they, they were very explicit that we were not supposed to communicate directly with the winners. And I get it. It's because, you know, we don't, they, they don't want us to influence, you know, potential reviews or ratings and whatnot. But I guess this was a, a sanctioned communication. And so, you know, I, I sent him the the <laughs> proof, the, you know, the receipt and whatnot. And I think it turned out that he had just forgotten to go to the post office to, to check his mail and it had been sitting there for a while, which I'm guessing from I'm the sure, left. I'm sure that could be. That's, that sounds about right. And, and so a, a few weeks after that, he um, reached out again about joining the group. And of course, I was skeptical at first because it was, you know, a, an email request and it just, I wasn't sure, but my gut told me that it was something good. And it was such yeah. a great surprise because... I, I was able to interact with so many phenomenal writers and just great people in general. Out of everyone, your work and your just personality resonated the most with me. But I really enjoyed the poetry from Rashida Khan. Yeah, a whole lot. Yeah, I'm still, you know, I'm, I still have lots of buddies from that group. So it it was great. It was really great. But I mean, as you know, you know, writing the book's the easy part. That's <laughs> it, true. It's the, it's what you have to do with the rest of it, you know. And as an indie, it's you know, I was published. My first four books were published by an American publishing house, but they very generously gave me the book blocks, and then I sort of acted as an independent um, writer here. So I would get my print runs done, and then it's the same thing, you know. Many book fairs, many pushes, many, you know. And Andrew was always very against putting your book in a, you know, getting a distributor and putting your book in a bookshop. Because, you know, as South African authors, you make about 12 rand. I don't even think that's a dollar. In fact, it isn't even a dollar. Oh, wow. Off a book you sell in the bookshop. So, you know, by the time everyone's taken their cuts of your books. So he was, you know, if you could sell your book clean out of pocket, you could make a good profit. But here, the book, well, I'm sure it's the same everywhere, you know. It's very it's very difficult to make a, a living out of writing. Right. Well, I know for Would me... You, Oh, I'm, oh, absolutely. And for me, too, I had an interest in getting a, a traditional publishing contract. And I mistakenly thought that writing a series would somehow make it more marketable, not realizing that if you can't sell uh, a, a potential agent on one book, you're definitely not going to be able to sell them on four or five. It's true. Yeah, my trilogy also, you know, I... But, you know, at least we have our provenance. We've done our work now. We've got these books. We've, you know, they, they will stand there as our legacy. And, and that's not, you know, you know, everyone says to you, so how, is it easy to write a book? Or I want to write a book. What, what advice can you give me? <laughs> and I always say, think very carefully, you know. Right. <laughs> I always ask them, yeah, are you a bit of a sadomasochist? Because if the answer is no, you're not going to make it, dear, you know. It's yeah. It's it's a tough it's a tough thing to do. Right, it and really be, is. And but, being, um, you know, being a writer is more about being a marketer in in the modern era more so than ever before. But it's also a consequence of the changes, right? In I would say the early two thousands, there was a black mark on you if you went the self publishing route. There, there was like a no hope at that point of getting a, a professional. Right, there was a stigma associated with it, and now. That's largely mm -hmm. gone away, but the problem is that the market is is oversaturated with material. Yes, exactly. And I think also indies, 
they don't they often don't pay enough to get their books adequately edited and you know so there is a lot of junk out there you yeah. said that you had a background in in teaching English education, and I did as well. And I think that's sort of a vetting process of sorts. We've learned how to write. We've had our more importantly, we've had our writing critiqued by professionals, whether it's um, professors or uh, other writers who've done it before us. And like you said, too many of the independent writers now don't go through that process. Specifically, will avoid it. They won't get beta readers, or they or they will ignore whatever their readers tell them in terms of feedback. And it's created a difficult situation for writers who want to and maybe are more deserving, just based on the merits of their writing alone, of being recognized and noticed. But it's it's just another challenge. I think also you need a bit of money, you know, because you need to pay someone to do this. But when you're an indie and you're not making any money off your writing, you know, you have nothing to plow back into. it. So even, you know, independent writers who want to do it are often in a position where financially they just can't afford to. Absolutely. And for me, the decision to remain an independent author for now, at least, was more on creative control. I wasn't worried about an editor telling me to rewrite the story or to change this or that. It was more I realized I enjoyed every aspect of it, you know, designing the cover, um, the the layout, uh, just everything about it. And then the marketing as well. I enjoy, you know, gaining new skills or enhancing ones that I've had. And so developing, you know, trailers for the books or coming up with innovative ideas to market whatever I'm working on at the time is a valuable experience for me. And it it just, it it feeds back on itself. You know, it helps me become a better writer because I'm looking at things from different angles that uh, maybe a published author or or just someone who's not as interested in the full, the full scope of it would have access to. No, you're just too damn smart and you're showing off now. Yeah. See? <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that could definitely be part of it. Um, well, it's, it's funny because you mentioned your daughter being um, skilled in both the arts and math. And that was always I, – I never really appreciated – the fact that I had the best of both worlds. Like my first job teaching was actually for, we have the the SAT exam, which is a, yes, basically a college yes. entrance exam. And so yeah. I was able to tutor both the math side and the reading side, which was great because I, I had a natural knack for both, for words and for numbers. And I didn't realize at the time that that wasn't a common thing, um, especially yeah. most of the math-oriented people that I know don't like <laughs> they they don't like to write or they're not interested in, in that aspect of it. And especially the flip side is true where a lot of my creative friends just they say they don't have a head for numbers. And I've always hated that that type of mentality because that more often than not, people who say that either struggled with math because they didn't have the right teacher or they had a teacher who told them flat out that they were bad at math. And that that kills me. I think everybody can learn math and science and things of that nature, they just may need to learn it in a different way, right? Or, or have it come from a different angle. Mm, do you mind if I just stick with the words? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that left brain, right brain thing is is a fabulous thing to have. And I think, you know, a lot more, you know, interestingly enough, I was reading an article about why musicians and, and creatives, you know, don't make you can't keep their money. They may amass a fortune, but many of them just go through their money and die penniless and things. And I, I think it is to do with that, you know, is that for it, whatever reason, and some of them that you state, I do think hold some some validity, 
But, you know, it is it is a fact that a lot of creatives are not very good. And if you just look at how they ma- mismanage their funds, for example, and their life, you know, their economics, it's actually quite tragic. Right. And I mean, and that speaks to it as well, right? There are plenty of writers yeah. who want to write only. They don't necessarily have a head for marketing. And and that's not something that I, I take for granted either. I went to, to school for finance and I had the full, you know, business background and experience, accounting, finance, marketing, all of it. And so that definitely influences the decisions that I make. And I think it gives me the opportunity again to come to come to things from a different perspective. Uh, and understand maybe a little bit more about, you know, what goes on. I don't know how active you are on Twitter, but I'm part of something on there called the writing community. And it's, it's like a a diluted version of books and everything. Um, and I've noticed that there are so many people who are marketing their books or, or getting frustrated because they feel like they're marketing their books on there, but they don't realize that they're just marketing them to other writers. They're not trying to build readers. And so it's, you know, again, it's, I, I do feel for the folks who don't necessarily have a strength in terms of a business acumen, because you really do, if you want to be, you know, a a financially solvent writer, you need to have that as a skill set. And it's a, it's a steep learning curve. I can tell you that. It is indeed. And also, you know, just, just writing whatever's in vogue. I mean, a while ago, it was sort of uh, erotica was huge. And then it was now, rom- you know, romance, looking at genres and, and actually writing according to genres is probably a sensible way to start. But, you know, I, I just never did that as a writer. I just had these stories that wouldn't leave me and wrote them, you know. Well, so I'm, um, <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because that's, my that's another reason why I I've enjoyed the indie route because I've wanted to write stories. I, I'm I the first thing I tell people is it might not be for you and that's okay. I I'm not writing it for anybody but myself. And that was a really early lesson that I learned and one that I'm incredibly grateful for because it made me much happier with the process and it opened up the creative floodgates, if you will, because I wasn't concerned or preoccupied with, oh, will will this be commercially successful? Will this appeal to people? Exactly. And so at the end of the day, and, and the funny thing is the proudest moment I've had as a writer was when my oldest son was finally old enough to read my books and he, he loved them. You know, and, and they uh, are definitely not kids' books. They're not written in a way that, you know, would necessarily appeal to uh, an adolescent. And so for him to have gotten what he got out of it was great. And uh, I remember, I think I think it was my daughter who wrote that I was her favorite author for like a school paper or something. And, and those experiences are things I never anticipated having, you know, as a result of writing. And th- those are the things I cherish and value the most. Yeah, that's very, very special. You mentioned earlier about um, cultural appropriation, and I think the reason why you are so successful in your writing and why it's so appealing, at least to me, is it's authentic, right? There's authenticity in your word. It's coming from a genuine place. And I think when that becomes an issue here, whether it's in acting or writing or whatever it happens to be, it's because the person that is engaging in the appropriation is doing so for inauthentic reasons, right? Like they don't understand the underlying aspects, let's say, of the culture or whatever it is that they're going for. And I think as a writer, and and you specifically as a writer, we are constantly absorbing and assessing details from, from the world around us. And I think that puts us in a position where if we feel that urge to write about something, we're doing so from an experienced position, uh, 
but maybe not the same vantage point as someone who's lived it firsthand. And I think that enables us to write about those things, even if that's not our personal experience. Would you agree? I would. I would. But still, you know, it's quite a nerve wracking thing and you've got to work very hard at it, you know, because you've you you understand that it's it is loaded, you know, and it might be something that someone takes offense to. So it takes it takes hard work and it takes courage and and also using tools like ethnographic, you know, um, for example, Entangled Weeds, my first book, there's a, a story of a boy who goes up a mountain for his initiation. Um, and that is actually my friend's personal story of what happened up there, because that's also shrouded in secrecy and not really allowed to be discussed. So for those kind of stories, you know, I'm very grateful and I, I recognize how valuable they are, you know, and that you have to overcome a lot to be prepared to, to, to share those stories. So it's, it's, very, it's a very sensitive issue. But, you know, I also think in South Africa, there's just so much taboo around so many things. Um, and just things are shrouded in secrecy and and that is maintained through power and control and fear you know you're told if you tell this this will happen and that will happen and you know and and I just don't think people should be controlled by fear so that's why I feel it's important to tell those stories in a very sensitive manner what I love about writing is creating this what I consider meaningful content, right? Like I put a lot of effort into giving it depth. And it's frustrating because I'll see, you know, the top of the the New York Times bestseller list is some memoir from a celebrity. Yeah. You know, it's 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 almost like junk food is the, is the way I think of it. And and it's not just limited to writing. It's, you know, whether it's movies or music, and it is, it's sort of chasing that zeitgeist uh, for the sake of yep. trying to remain relevant. And so I appreciate yeah. writing like yours and Rashida Khan's and, and other authors who I've interacted with who don't worry about that. Like it's it's the focus is still on the authenticity of it and creating something for the sake of of creating it. And, and that's that's the one thing that I don't think people understand about writing is they'll they'll say, well, where do you, where do you get your ideas from? And it's not a conscious thing, you know, it's, it's something that develops inside of us and it's a need to get it out, at least in my experience. No, absolutely. And, and I don't think, I don't think if it's very difficult to complete, if you don't have that drive from within you pushing you forward. And I know for me, as trite as it might sound, the best writing that I've done, it, it told itself. Like I'm, I do like to have plot you know, layouts and, and just notes to refer to really just as a way to keep everything moving forward. But I've learned to, to shut up and listen when the story begins to sort of take a life of its own and lead, even if it leads me in a completely different direction than I was anticipating. And I mean, you really can't express that to someone who's never experienced it, you know? Yeah, I'm terrible. I'm a complete pantser. I don't have, I don't know how things are going to work out. And I, by three quarters of the way through the book, I'm nearly jumping off a tall building because I'm thinking, Wow, we look where I have got myself. How am I going to figure this one out? But then your characters tell you. And also they behave in a way that's appropriate to their own personality. So they go and do things, you know, because that is what they would choose. And so it's a muddle, but it's a, it's an exciting process. So, right. And yeah. that's the thing. Like, I hope that my stories resonate with people or that they find something of interest in them. Um, but again, it, it's 
not like it's something I take personally because, again, in, in certain instances, the characters write themselves. They may be born in my my mind, but they sort of exist unto themselves on on the page. And I and that's the thing. Like I think the best writing is sort of a, a pantser mentality versus a plotter or plotzer, um, because it's too rigid otherwise. If you dictate every single aspect of your your story, it's going to be stale and stiff. Whereas if you just sort of allow it and 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 let it be free flowing, you'll wind up reaching the the end of the journey, right? And I think it's a much richer experience for it. I think so. I, you could probably save quite a bit of time though if you plotted a bit more carefully. Right. Uh, absolutely. As as writers, we have a lot of time, don't we? <laughs> no, but I I mean I know I know commercial writers who are churning out they're churning out really good stuff and they work extremely hard. But you know they have every detail of the plot down. So I always said, mm, you know. If I only I could have a bit more of that, but it's just not the way it's not it's not my creative process at all. I just can't do it. And that's the thing. It's a matter of what works for you. And I know for me, the phrase that irritates me more than anything else is aspiring writer, because to me, <laughs> when someone claims to be an aspiring writer, all that says to me is that they've been too too afraid of taking the plunge, whether it's to write the story, to share it with others, to release it, whatever it happens to be. And it's a shame because that's usually the writer is the only thing holding those books back right from being written. And it's frustrating because I want to see people you know, get over that fear. And I know that, see, that's a big problem with our society here in the United States right now is people spend too much of their time focused on things like social media and, and just things that I feel are valueless compared with something like writing a book or writing a song, getting involved with music or community or community organization. There's just not enough of that, I feel. And I don't know if it's the same in South Africa um, and, and your locale specifically, but it's frustrating. I think um, we've got, you know, our our artists and like we. I just was watching our slam poets. They've had a major. So our guy just won the in the international slam poetry. Um, I think our poets and our those kind of young creatives are really coming into their own here, because it's a voice and a way for people to express all the angst and, you know, and, and be heard. And are they so raw? The South African poets that do it, are, it's so moving. It's so absolutely amazing. So I do think there's some very exciting stuff, you know, coming out in, in those kind of ways here, particularly spoken word and, and stuff like that. I mean, it, it gives you absolute, I just land up, when I watch it, I land up in tears, you know, between complete goosebumps and complete floods of tears because it's it's just so potent so i think now more than ever people are needing here to express express the you know that and have a a creative slant on on all the problems and social issues so i've noticed with slam po with spoken word and slam poetry that's really there there are some amazing poets here doing that so that's good because that's one way of you know getting getting things moving and 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 bringing about the, the the space for people to to give these messages out across the world you know right and i think that there's this misconception i guess about uh, your daughter's generation and, and and my children's that they're either indifferent or unaware of all the social issues and all the things going on and i would clap back firmly against that because they are aware they just may not be as demonstrative in their responses to it 
and they've navigated their lives in a completely different era than than either of us did in terms of their access to information, their access to creative outlets, especially. And so I'm hopeful that there will be sort of a, a an echo effect or a rebounding where the older folks maybe are losing themselves in social media or, or these other pursuits. And the younger generation will come in behind them and and pick up the the reins, whether it's music or poetry, writing, and continue to find new ways to express themselves and be more open-minded. Because that's what I think the big issue is here is I think in the United States, it's too easy to live within a bubble of your own creation. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. most folks don't leave the areas that they live in, you know, they'll take a flight to a resort or an amusement park or whatever, but they don't actually go out and see the world. They don't interact with other people. And that's something that I've really strived to avoid doing with my kids. You know, even when they were younger, I made it a point to have difficult conversations. If they had questions about things that were going on or something they heard about, my wife and I made it a point to have appropriate discussions with them. And I just wish that more people shared more of the the world with their kids and also went out and explored more of what was out there for themselves. No, totally. I think I think this generation are, you know, that's where I see hope as well. They woke to a point where they sometimes painful, you know, but but they are less judgmental, they're more free to adapt to, you know, I mean if you just look at 30 38 um, genders on the gender spectrum now. You know, things like that. The youth are amazingly, they're, they're more tolerant, they, 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 you know, and they're just more aware. They, they say, no, I'm not eating, we've got one, I'm not eating meat because of the methane. I'm like, okay, that's great. Then you get in the kitchen and cook yourself right. dinner, which it, doesn't, which it doesn't do, but still. You know, I admire those things. I admire that they see the problems. And I think the thing about the other thing I want to say about about South African society is, you know, we live in one of the richest suburbs in the whole of Africa. But there's a there are four beggars on every single stop street or traffic light that you get to here. So it's pretty impossible now to kind of live in a little bubble where we are. And I think that's why people are just going to live in other places. Life is in your face here. You know where we are. It you you can see the the stress and strain, and that's you know some it's it's exhausting, but it's also necessary. It doesn't allow you just to hide behind your big tall electric fence. That's sort of the issue here. Is folks when I was referring to people spending too much time on social media, they're living these you know digital lives because they're they're turning a blind eye to their unhappiness in their actual lives. You know, folks here, I wouldn't say we're in an affluent area, but in the suburbs here as well, you know, people don't really want for much. There, there's a lot yeah. of access to things. And you would think that having, you know, whether it's material wealth or experiences or whatever it happens to be, you would assume that there would be happiness associated with it. But I think that the more people focus on those types of things, the less happy they become. And they're constantly chasing this ideal that they it, it's unattainable, you know, and I know it's it's, exactly. probably, it's probably a trope at this point. But there's, you know, the, yeah. the idea that people are living these fantastic lives, whether they're they're influencers on Instagram or just through their you know Facebook posts. They, it looks like they live these perfect lives. And because so many people don't have something 
substantial to fall back on or, or these other things that fulfill them, they're constantly chasing these little fulfillments, right? The the yeah. dopamine yeah. rush of a, a like or a retweet or whatever it happens to be. And it's frustrating because there's so much more out there. And like you said, like I'm hoping that our children's generation will be able to look past that. And I don't mean to put down social media in general. There's a lot of good that comes out of it and there's nothing wrong with sharing posts and doing things like that. But when it becomes the the focal point and where you find your fulfillment, that's where it's an issue. Um, and Pretty sad. It is. It's And especially here, there's so much to be gained and so, ma- so many experiences to be had. And there's been this m- movement recently of a negative attitude towards colleges and higher education. And to me, the value of it was always, I mean, obviously you want to get a degree and it can help you move along a professional path. But I really began to see myself as a citizen of the world when I went to college, more so than just a resident of my you know, borough, state, country, and whatnot. And that's really it. It's, it's understanding. You can understand other people when you go out and have those experiences. And it's, it's sad. Again, I don't mean to put down my, my fellow countrymen and women here, but I, I mean, the average person in, in America probably couldn't name all 50 states, let alone their capitals or cities uh, within them. They probably couldn't even fill it in on a map. And that's sort of pathetic if you think about it when you have folks who come from an entire continent, right, in Africa, who know so much about the other countries, uh, you know, that are thousands and thousands of kilometers away. And it's, again, it just comes back to being able to inhabit this self-imposed bubble. And I, I really think unless people willingly change that and go out and seek those experiences and seek those interactions with other people here, that nothing's going to change, societally speaking, here in the United States. Exactly. It's a thirst for knowledge. But, you know, all these things that we've been talking about also come from, you know, like what we do for our kids and how we try and socialize them and how we're prepared to have conversations and how we build their self-esteem and how we, you know, teach them to stand up to bullies and you know, I think that, that that gives you such a good grounding in life. And if you don't have that and, you you know, you don't have that kind of stability and that kind of you haven't had your eyes opened, yes, you, you can open them yourselves, but it is that much more difficult, you know. So it's once again that thing of of encouraging and inspiring and bringing knowledge and interest to, to younger people and trying to make people secure and happy within themselves. You know, I think that that is definitely an advantage in life. Absolutely. And it's funny, initially, I was looking to set up some interviews for the podcast with women who were successful in fields that are stereotypically male-dominated. So for for our conversation, that was the arts and writing. Uh, my next interview that will be posted is with a Division II women's basketball coach. Sports is obviously, yeah. you know, stereotypically male-dominated here. And I was hoping to get a someone from the craft beer realm because that's another outlet of mine that I've been involved with. And yes, I know. Your beer. <laughs> yes. So that fell through. And what I realized was I had two Sarahs with an H, so spelled correctly, uh, as the guests lined up for those <laughs> other uh, avenues. And so I decided I'm going to bring my daughter on as the third because it's three different generations and three women, or in, in Sarah's case, a girl, who I feel embody a fierce spirit of determination and self-confidence 
that is important to leadership, you know, and, and I think that you inspire so many people through your writing, but also just the way you live your life. And I can't speak for your, your daughters specifically, but I would imagine that you are a, a source of inspiration for them solely because of, you know, this fearlessness about you. You love life, you go after the things that you go after, and it doesn't seem like there's ever a question in your head, well, oh, am I worthy enough to do this or should I do this? If it's something that you want to do and, and go after, you go after it. And the coach who I have set up for the next interview is the same when it comes to sports and basketball. She set up her own organization. She has her own business. She is an inspiration to so many young girls who are trying to break into a field in basketball that is stereotypically male-dominated. And I think that representation is so important for younger girls. No, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking so, the time to speak with me today. Thank you, my friend, for calling and come and visit us in South Africa, huh? Oh, I would love to, believe me. So, One day you're going to. Well, I think once the kids are off the college and, and uh, we can save for a, a right trip out there. Then you bring them too. Yes, absolutely. You know what? Maybe, maybe they'll be able to pay for us, <laughs> pay for the airfare. Exactly. Well, don't, don't wait too long because Charles and I might be too old by then. <laughs> Thanks a million, Matthew. Lots of love from here. Thank you so much. And thank you to everyone who's listening, wherever and whenever you are.